Here we are in the heart of our 30-day challenge. It's the kindness challenge. I hope that you've been engaged in the challenge. If you signed up for the emails, the emails have been coming every day with some reference to uh, some important dimension of uh, this kindness challenge, whether it's gratitude or thankfulness, uh, just a number of ideas that are right out of Scripture from uh, uh, Shanti Feldhahn's uh, uh, book. And I uh, have appreciated the feedback from many of you, uh, both from email or texting or uh, in person, that have said that uh, you've needed to grow in kindness. I think all of it's all of us have need to grow in kindness. First of all, as the fruit of the spirit. But beyond that, I'll tell you what: there's so many elements of what's going on in our world, and sometimes in our own, even in our own families, that uh, we just uh, remember we see each other as irritants. And so I, we used that word a few weeks ago. Instead of saying enemies, as the Scripture said, I suggested you look at it as irritants because sometimes we don't see people necessarily as an enemy, but boy, do we have a lot of irritants. And uh, how important that is to grow in our kindness in that way. And so my prayer is that by now you will have had some situations, I'm almost certain, if you've been paying attention and thinking about this, where your temptation was to be unkind. And uh, that is through your superpower. That is through God's Holy Spirit, through the living Christ that's in you, you call on your superpower to choose to be kind, just as Jeff already has shared with us in the communion thought this morning, not to get right with God, but because of who, what Christ has done for us in His kindness, we in turn can extend that kindness to others. I want to go back to the Old Testament for just a few minutes this morning, and I want us to think about a conflict, and we, we dealt with one aspect of this conflict a few weeks ago, but there's another marvelous story in Scripture in Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 9. We, we looked at this uh, relationship between David and Saul just a few weeks ago, and here they were fighting, and Saul wasn't happy that David was gaining popularity and influence and was called by God to be the next king. And of course, Saul didn't want to give up his power and his place as king. So Saul was so jealous that he wanted to murder David. That's more an irritant. That borders on an enemy, doesn't it? And after Saul, uh, he, so he pursued David for, for years as if he was on a big game hunt. And after Saul falls on his own sword in battle and dies, then David takes the throne. And David says this in 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1, and this is... Uh, Ansley did a great job of reading this morning, and uh, in that, uh, in verses 7 and 8, and I want to back up to verse 1 of chapter 9, it says this, David asked, he's now king, Saul's dead, a bunch of Saul's kids are dead, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? 
to whom I can show kindness. For Jonathan's sake. You see, several of Saul's sons had died in the battle, including David's dear, dear friend, Jonathan. And because of their bond and their relationship, David had made a promise to Jonathan that he would show kindness to Saul's family. And so we're seeing it lived out in this text in 9.1. You see, in spite of Saul's vindictive spirit, David was determined to keep the promise. So David asked, are there any other relatives of Saul? And, and I want us to see that this was not unusual in the, this was unusual in the transition of power. What was not unusual is that the standard protocol was for the new king to kill the rest of the old royal family. Why would you do that? Obvious. So there are no other challengers from this family that's on the way out to the throne. Sometimes you just got to reduce your conflicts, right? That is, eliminate the threat of this previous dynasty. So Jonathan though he's dead, has a son that is in hiding. Living in a remote area of the kingdom, living, I suspect, right around the poverty level, and he is living in fear that this new king would find him and kill him. Now, I want you to see something else in the text in verse 3. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, and he is lame in both feet. There's this one disabled boy, young man. So David sent for this guy whose name is Mabivosheth. And Ansley said that so much better than I did. (laughs) I've been trying all week and I couldn't get there, so I've nicknamed him, and I am sure that everybody around him nicknamed him Meph. There is no way they called him by his whole name. Not Meph, okay, but Meph. So we're going to call him Meph. And this text in verse 3 says, go ahead, there we got it up there. To whom I can show God's kindness. Isn't that a remarkable use of words by David? Now, what do you suppose Meph was thinking as he was called before the king? I don't know if he was wanting to be found, nor summoned, 
And he's thinking, I am going to die because my grandpa was a jealous, raging maniac. And he comes before David and he fell on his face and he was cowering in fear. And this is how David responds in verse 7. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. I said grandpa, didn't I? I guess it was actually father. Verse 8, Meph bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And he fell on his face and he gave great honor to David. You see, David in this instance does exactly what is the opposite of what was expected, of conventional expectation. It flies in the face of tradition and culture and good common sense. He directly speaks to Meph's deepest emotion, fear, because that's what kindness does. He is attuned to the other person, and he, he says, and then he indicates that he's going to restore all the land and all the fields owned by Saul, and he says, you will eat at my table always. David's kindness is extraordinary. To eat at the king's table was not simply a temporary honor. It, 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 it meant that he was going to permanently, permanently receive a pension, a disability check from the king for the rest of his life. Meph would always eat at the king's table. David's kindness wasn't a one-shot deal, but would continue throughout Meph's entire life. If you think about it, think about what that kindness provides Meph. Dignity, acceptance, reconciliation, provision. David addresses Meph's emotional needs, his physical needs, his financial needs, his needs for acceptance and belonging, that's kindness. As David himself said, the kindness of God. It's from God. You see, David's kindness, as Richard Ezel said, is a deeper demonstration of love that is undeserved unearned, and unrepayable. And just as Jeff indicated earlier in the communion thought, that is hard to distinguish that from grace, isn't it? 
Or we could say from love. It's an expression of a kind of love. Now, if it isn't obvious at this point, do you see how kindness is so much more than niceness? And do you see how kindness is more than simply good feelings? Though it might include those. And right here, while we're in the middle of this 30-day challenge, I want to say it this way, kindness does. There's a popular book, it was written just a few years ago by Bob Goff called Love Does. I like that title. The book is good. And here is the truth of this passage kindness does. It's more than a disposition of your heart. In fact, we might say it this way, and if I had to summarize the point of what I'm trying to get at in today's message, your kindness to others is the kindness of God in action. It's been said that the greatest thing a man can do for his heavenly Father is to be kind to his other children. Can this be far off? Or said another way, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the great Aslan says it to Diggory, whose mom is very sick. And maybe some in the congregation, you could uh, relate to this Even now, as you're going through a situation or a time of grief or a season of grief, and who hasn't felt some deep grief over the last couple of years? Aslan, my son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. And only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good. to one another. Now let me be practical about kindness for just a minute, and that is uh, in Shanti Feldhahn's book that I've been referencing throughout this series, she gives eight ways that kindness does, putting kindness into action, and I'm only going to cover four. And I refer you back to the book, and you can read that chapter in her book. But I want to quickly go through these very, very practically. Number one, kindness assumes the best. It looks for generous explanations. And if you're like me, you've received a text or an email that just struck you wrong recently. Or it's so easy to read into it. You're not quite sure what is meant by it, but you begin to, begin to think about all these possibilities that maybe some of them are not, not so good. Or someone walks by you at church and they really don't even say hello and you're thinking, what? As if you didn't exist. And, you, 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 and so my suggestion is, again and again, as we go back to the heart of the kindness of God, we think about this in terms of favorable explanations. And as you look for favorable explanations, you will find them. And it takes training to use our superpowers to do this, the Holy Spirit in you. Number two, kindness gives focused attention. 
It pays attention. It learns to ask questions, to be fully present, to go the extra mile to understand the world of another, to take an interest in others. If you don't know what is important to them, then how kind are you really? I'll just give a little illustration here. I hope this is fair. But if you don't know the names of our youth, and I understand it's a process and it's not easy and new one, you know, group show up and all that sort of thing. But if you don't know their names, then maybe I would suggest that you've simply been nice to them. Not kind. Of course, it works the other way too, guys. Kindness, number three, gives something that is valuable to you. It costs. If you work in the food pantry for very long, here's what will happen. The other side of what I'm talking about. Someone will clean out their pantry. And they'll bring some odd food items. Like Brussels sprouts. Have you seen this, Quain? You know what I'm talking about. He's worked up there. It's like it expired in 1855. <laughs> and it's some odd item that nobody wanted to eat from their own pantry that expired long ago and that we can't actually even give out. But we've now honored the pantry with this so we can give it to... Do you get where I'm going with this? Does that, did that cost anything? Give your time, give your money, give your affection, give up your sleep, give up the last piece of pie. All right. That was a big one. I understand. Some of us will really have to be prayer in prayer about that one. All right. Finally, number four, kindness gives small acts of service. It's that consistency of those small acts of service that's so important. Doesn't David show these and more? Now, for the last part of this message this morning, and there's some powerful, powerful points that we can practice for the rest of our lives, frankly. But I, I want you to consider something else. That is God's kindness. You see, David's situation with meth... I want to suggest, is Scripture's way of setting up to, for us to understand God's situation with us. What do I mean? Aren't you and I like meth in a host of ways? And David's promises to meth are like God's promises to you and me. Think about it this way. Weren't you once or even now, like Meph, distant from your king? Before you came to God, the Bible teaches, Jeff already read it in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, separated from God because you didn't know God or His love for you. Don't you need to receive 
the king's kindness in humility. I know there's some in our assembly this morning that have not yet accepted with a faith and a confession and baptism the offer that God has made in His kindness through His death of His Son and the resurrection of Jesus. Weren't you once or aren't you now like Meph, often hiding, feeling weak, broken, disabled, and fearful before the King who comes to you? Hasn't King Jesus given you more, way more than what you ever lost when you hid from Him? Doesn't your king express extraordinary kindness to you even when you feel like a nobody? You see, think of it this way. All of us are weak and broken, and yet God has a place for us at the table just like Meph was provided a place at David's table. You see, we're consistently eating at the king's table. In one sense, all day, every day. In another way, think of the Lord's Supper and our communion as an invitation by the king to consistently eat with him. Now, Meph wasn't uh, physically healed, but he was spared, and he was saved, and he was served. You see, God doesn't take away all of our weaknesses or even all of our fears or all of our disabilities, but He freely and kindly gives us grace and a place. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you have done, the King is steady in His kindness to you. You're welcomed at the king's table. You're welcomed into the great banquet of God. I want to give you one more verse. This is verse 11. So Meph ate at David's table. like one of the king's sons. As we close this morning, as we've seen that the kindness of God has preceded us throughout the Old Testament, And the kindness of God has been initiated with us through Jesus Christ. And the kindness of God 
is what the people of God are expected, are privileged, are eager to offer everyone who is in need of the feast of the King.